This talk was given by Vanessa Zuise Goddard Sensei. Zuise Sensei is a lay teacher in the Mountains and Rivers Order. This talk, like all of her talks, is offered free of charge. If you'd like to make a donation to find out more about her teachings or to join her mailing list, please visit her website at vanessazuisegoddard.org. Thanks for listening. I've been recently giving a series of talks on the four bodhisattva vows and uh, the relationship to the four noble truths. And, um, and the last talk that I gave was about uh, the second vow, desires are inexhaustible, I vow to put an end to them. And um, I, I said in the talk that, um, that that is true, you know, that the teachings are true and that with some... Um, actually, I didn't say that part in, in the talk. So let, let me just, I said, you know, that, that uh, this teaching is true, but if you've never been allowed to have your desires, if you don't know what your desires are, then how do you put an end to them? In other words, that, that there's the step before that, uh, that um, in a sense, presupposes a... Uh, a full life, a human life, from which to then explore what desires even are and how to put an end to them. And what I said, was, what I was asking, is, is that even desirable? What does that really mean? I believe it was, it was um, Jack Angler who said something along the lines of, you cannot let go of the self if you've never had a strong, a healthy sense of self if you've never been permitted to express it. And afterwards, in, in during Shugen Sensei's retreat on the Faith Mind poem, a group of us were, were talking about um, the challenge of hearing these teachings that, um, for example, in, in a case like this, you know, I'm, I'm giving a talk which already can be three talks. I've said this in the past. Uh, it's you know the talk that you wrote, the talk that you gave, and the, thought, the talk that you thought you gave. There's always slightly different versions. But you can add another fourth, a fourth talk, uh, which multiplies into many different talks, and that's the talk that each one of you hear. And you will hear it according to your disposition, your karma, your uh, filters that you have built over your particular life. And so, although the teachings are true, and you can, from the perspective of practice, verify them, confirm them through practice, with time, with some effort, it's, I think it's really important to constantly be aware of how we're hearing them and what we're hearing. In other words, if the teachings at any point seem to be negating you or your experience, question that, you know, really doubt that. Is, is the experience of what you are practicing, is it making you happier? Is it making you a kinder human being? And if it isn't, question that. Why is that? It could be that we're not practicing appropriately. It could be that we haven't understood the teachings, or it could be that, you know, 
there was something that, that you heard and put into practice, and it might not be quite what was meant. And of course, nobody sitting in this seat can cover all possibilities and make sure that everybody is um, hearing in the right way. Uh, I think all we can do is to be very aware of what, and not just in this context, actually, all of us, you know, what do we say? How do we act? What do we think, even? And what effect does this have on the world? And because then, you know, does place uh, quite a bit of emphasis on, on wisdom, right? on the, the realization of no self. And without it, really, not much else can happen. That's not true. Without it, um, it it's, it's like building a house without a foundation. And, and, and it almost implies that with that realization of wisdom, compassion is going to arise naturally. And I think if, if it is seen, if, if the, the, this concept of no self is seen clearly, then yes, compassion would arise naturally. But I think, you know, for most of us in, in, in real time, that is not necessarily the case. It actually needs to be very much cultivated. And the work of, of putting this, this insight, this wisdom into life is really the work of all your life. You know, it's what, what Sandy was speaking of this retreat and during this um, long weekend's retreat. How do you take the teachings and actually bring them into your life and have them be alive. So that this idea, this concept again of, of no self, is, it doesn't become cold. You know, it doesn't become distant or indifferent in any way. It, it's quite the contrary. I mean, it's, it is heartbreakingly close. Uh, Neruda has a, a poem called uh, The Book of Questions. And in this one, there's sets. There are sets of questions. And this one says, how long does a rhinoceros last after he's moved to compassion? What's new for the leaves of recent spring? In winter, do the leaves live in hiding with the roots? What did the tree learn from the earth to be able to talk with the sky? <clears throat> And this one, the first one, how long does a rhinoceros last after he's moved to compassion? It's actually not a great translation. The, the Spanish um, is really saying, how long does a rhinoceros last after it's been made tender? After it's, you could say, after it's ha- had its heart softened, even broken, perhaps. How long does it last then? And interestingly, the rhinoceros is sometimes used as an image for the self in Zen. And when I, when I found this particular set of questions, it just seemed appropriate uh, as it relates to the third bodhisattva vow. The dharmas are boundless. I vow to master them. And dharma, as, as you probably know, is, is referred to both as universal law but also as the, the, or the, the law of the natural order of things, 
but also refers to phenomena, to the things themselves. It also refers to mental qualities and to the teachings required to direct these qualities to be in accord with this natural, with this natural law. So it's not just a, a thought or an idea, but it's called, what is called an aperception, the, the mental process by which we, we make sense of an idea by assimilating it into the body of ideas that we already have. And so there, there are components of every moment of consciousness, what is, what is called a, a percept. It's both the object of perception and the perception itself. And because they are such, they, they're completely interrelated. They're related in overt ways, and they're related sometimes in, in subtle, quite subtle, mysterious ways. And I was thinking about this because, and I told some of you this, this story last month. I was working during Sashin, so I didn't do the regular Sashin. And one day I was, uh, after lunch, I decided to go for a walk, <clears throat> which I actually hadn't done on schedule in, in quite a while. And I, I went for a walk and was coming back, and I was on, just on South Plank Road. And all of a sudden I thought of going to the Abbassey, probably three or four years before, maybe even longer. Uh, for, we were doing, I think, a study session or a monk's meeting or something. And as we were going to the abbacy, we found a huge, huge snake facing off with a, also a huge frog. And so we stopped and, and we looked at them and, and they didn't look like they wanted to be messed with. So we quietly moved on. And when we came back, I think they were still there. And I was just remembering this. I was remembering this, this snake and, and this frog. And that then made me think of the little prince, you know, that drawing that he makes of an elephant inside a snake. So the snake has just eaten the elephant. And it kind of looks like a hat. And he said he would show it. You know, the, the author says he would show the, the, the drawing to people and ask them if they were frightened. And people would say, well, why would I be frightened of a hat? And he said, if they answered like this, then I would never talk to that person about boa constrictors, which is what the snake was, or primeval forests or stars. I would bring myself down to their level. I would talk to them about bridge and golf and politics and neckties. And the grown-up would be greatly pleased to have met such a sensible man. And so I was remembering, you know, the little prince and this snake and this frog. And, and, I, and I was... Um, remembering the kind of the intensity of when we saw those two animals, um, one of them about to become the other's lunch, and the rawness of, of that. And by that point, I was pretty much at the Dharma Communications building where the wall is, where the road splits. And as I turned, I saw this beautiful, tiny, tiny purple flower just on the, the edge of the wall. And so I got closer to it just to, to look at it. And as I did, I heard this noise uh, just, you know, just right behind me on the, on the ground. And I turned. What do you think I saw? But a snake eating a frog. Yeah. It, had, it was much smaller, snake, much smaller frog. But it had the entire back leg of the frog in its mouth. And so they were there. They were stuck. And, you know, you have this moment where you're just 
I had this moment where I'm just staring at them when I considered, you know, do I intervene? Do I do something? And then I thought, well, if I hadn't walked out now, I wouldn't have seen it. And why should I play God? And why should I assume that the snake is an entitled you know, to its lunch? So, so I didn't. I, I, I stood, I watched for a while, and nothing quite was happening. The snake couldn't, I mean, it was just stuck, and the frog couldn't free itself either. And then I just, I couldn't take it anymore. And I, I walked away and went back to work. What's new for the leaves of recent, recent spring? In a sense, what is not new when everything is, is rebirthed at each moment? And so the, the Abhidharma, which is the, the systematic classification of the teachings and, and the commentaries, uh, tries to describe every, every possible experience in terms of its component dharmas. And there's, uh, different schools have different lists for these categories of dharmas. And um, in Theravada Buddhism, there's, there's 82, but they, they're, they're divided in four main, into four main categories. One is consciousness, just in its bare manifestation. The other one is mental dharmas. The third one is physical dharmas. And these three categories are all conditioned. And so, and what are they conditioned by? Your experience, of course. And so, you know, this is one way of, of explaining how reality takes place. And then the fourth category is uh, unconditioned, and it is nirvana, cessation, liberation, which is exactly what this is all for. It's not just to make a nice list of, of uh, categories. It's really to to understand as carefully, as deliberately as possible, how do we um, build experience, really, moment to moment, and how can we use this understanding first to understand suffering and then to understand its cessation. So to understand dharmas as dharmas, we see, as, as the Buddha was, would, would say, you know, how to give rise to a wholesome thought for example, that has not yet arisen, and how to um, let go, how to release an unwholesome thought that has already arisen, and how to maintain a wholesome thought that has already arisen, etc. So, for example, let's say that there's a a thought of self-hatred that appears in your mind. You know, there's, there's two kind of there's many ways to deal with it, but there's the two fundamental ways to deal with it. You know, first, you can see the thought uh, directly, see into the nature of the thought, which is empty. That that, when it's seen clearly, that can um, dispel the, the, the energy of that thought of self-hatred. And I was, I was reading... Um, a book by a Tibetan teacher, Kalu Rinpoche, who was basically suggesting that we deal with emotions in, in this way. So to not get so caught up in the content of the emotion and the associated story, 
or stories, but to see directly into the nature of that emotion, which is not easy to do by any means, but it is the, you could say, the most direct way of dealing with an emotion. And and certainly from a Buddhist perspective, it is the... um, perhaps the, the, the quickest or the fullest antidote. Then the second way is to actually to, to recognize this unwholesome thought that has arisen to give rise to let it go and to give rise to a wholesome thought. However you understand a wholesome thought. To renounce it, to renounce this unwholesome thought and in a sense to replace it with a, a kind thought, a self-loving thought. And it could be, well, well but isn't that like, indulging? We're using skillful means to deal with what is unskillful. And it is choosing, in a sense, to treat yourself like you would like to be treated by others, exactly the same way. And again, this isn't simple, but it is the way in which we train our minds. You know, it's beginning to um, understand and understanding these dharmas that we're, not, that we're not victims of our thoughts, that they have power, and we give them power, and they have um, through, the, through our habits and through our history. But inherently, they don't own that power. It's not intrinsic to these dharmas, which are also empty. But having said that, let me also acknowledge that there are situations in which it is clear that there, that there are those who hold power and those who don't, or who hold uh, lesser power, or that is just being withheld from them. So, in other words, it's not all about what you're doing with your mind. And I think that is the danger of a practice that is, places such emphasis on self-reliance. Because then it can, you could very easily convince yourself there's something that I'm doing or something that I'm not doing. I'm not practicing correctly. Or we can turn to someone else and say, well, you know, that's just is their karma. They deserved it. And that is not what Buddhism is saying at all. And seeing dharmas as dharmas, we realize how our experience is a deeply, deeply interconnected net of these components, common to every single human being, in fact, which, nevertheless, we each experience according to our own karma. And, of course, our experience is always limited by our experience, actually, which means that our world is limited by our experience. We would never say to a deaf person, we, we would never try to, to convince them that their experience is wrong. And yet so often we project our own experience into the world and assume it to be the experience, the right, correct experience. We do it consciously sometimes and we do it unconsciously at others. Because that experience is, is formed through the interaction of our senses with, with consciousness. 
So if one of your senses isn't there, it becomes clear, oh, okay, that, that your experience gets limited by that. It's different or it changes. But that is true whether you have all of your senses or not. That is always true. And so is the world that I'm speaking of the world that you're inhabiting? And how will I ever know for sure? Well, for sure I won't, actually. I won't. And so we do this, you know, kind of this, this projection of, our, of our, ex- our experience with the best of intentions often, you know, either out of, out of ignorance or just out of the very limits of our experience. So in one sense, that is inevitable because we're only able to see what we can see at any given moment. In another sense, it is avoidable. The more that we see, the more we understand ourselves, the more we understand how we are, in fact, uh, creating this shared, shared experience. Somebody told me this, this story recently of a remote monastery, uh, some kind of Christian monastery, and um, uh, where the, the, all of their texts, their sacred texts, the originals are kept uh, under lock and key. But they have a practice, the monks have a practice of um, copying, copying their, their texts is just part of their liturgical practice and meditative practice. But they only use copies. And then a new abbot comes on board and decides that that's a little bit weird. I mean, why aren't they using the originals since they have them to, to, to do their what would be our, for us our sutra copying. And so he decides that he's going to go and, and look at the originals. And uh, he goes into the vaults, gets, gets the, all the various keys that he needs to open the locks. He goes into the vault, and then he disappears for a couple of days, and nobody, can, nobody knows where he is. And so a group of them finally kind of shyly gets together to go find him. And they go downstairs, and they find him, just beating his head against the wall. And one of them <clears throat> goes up and says, you know, what, what are you doing? What's happening? And he turns to them and says, you know, with tears streaming down his eyes, the word was celebrate. <laughs> so we do create our world moment to moment <clears throat> based on our limited understanding. I mean, we actually do fairly well, considering. And we could all use some work. In winter, do the leaves live in hiding with the roots? Only if they have to. Only if they have to. And no one wants to live in hiding. This Beyond Fear of Differences work that we're doing for those of you who don't know, there's a small group of us um, looking at uh, bias, looking at oppression, looking at power and how it can be used and misused, looking at issues of race and sexuality and gender. And um, we're seeing quite uh, directly, quite starkly, how difficult it is to just hold another's experience, just hold it to not try to make it better, 
I tried to compare it to my own experience, which may or may not be their own, to not suddenly or not so suddenly turn away from it, but to just be there with it. Sometimes it's very, very painful. And then decide, you know, first just, in a sense, witness, be there with it, and then decide, what will I do about this? How will I participate? How will I respond? Because we're always responding is the thing. And the question is how? And it is, it, is, it is deeply humbling work. I mean, we've said before that it's, you know, it's a group of people, most of us know each other, have known each other for a couple of decades. So we, we love each other, we respect each other, and we still hurt one another, not wanting to, clearly not wanting to, because we really want to do this work, and we still do and how, how uh, challenging that is, and, and in a way, how not necessary that we hurt each other, but necessary that we move through it, that, you, that we, we continue to learn uh, ways to um, hold the other's experience, to be, to be interested, to be curious about the other's experience that may be completely, completely different from my own. What did the tree learn from the earth to be able to talk with the sky? What do you learn day by day on your cushion from watching your mind, from listening to others, being with others? And what can we learn from from all of it, not just tree and sky, but all of it? We had to, to take our cat to the pet emergency room, uh, more or less recently, and there was this woman there who was a, um, an assistant or a technician who was the cat whisperer. I mean, I don't know how she is with dogs, but she was incredible. I mean, our cat is not, is not a cuddly sort of cat. She's very old, first of all. She's 20. And um, she's not cuddly. I mean, it's 20 years. She's just beginning to go on our laps. Hopefully not right just before she dies. And this woman, who had never seen her before, fully our cat had never seen this woman before, it was, it was like, it was love at first sight. <laughs> and this woman was incredible. And my partner and I are just kind of with, with our jaws open. And really what, what it was is this woman was so incredibly, incredibly uh, loving with this creature. And I remember thinking to myself, Jesus, I mean, if, if she's like that with, with people, which I wasn't sure, <laughs> didn't seem like she was. But, but then I was thinking, isn't that what we all want? I mean, fully was like lapping it up clearly. And it's like, isn't that what we all want? Somebody who just, as I say often, regards you completely, completely unconditionally and and holy, you know, it's just embracing you fully. Isn't that what we all want in a very, very deep, very primal level to be loved? But, you know, so even with good intentions, we do hurt one another. And we hurt one another without such good intentions, you know, out of, the igno- out of ignorance and the limits of our, of our experience or our understanding, sometimes our care. 
the lack of interest or the ability to go into what we don't know, what we cannot see and, and which feels in many ways frightening. In, in Spanish, we have a saying, más um, vale malo por conocido que bueno por conocer, which is similar to, uh, equivalent to uh, the devil, better the devil you know than the devil you don't. But really what, what it's saying literally is better the, the bad that you know than the good that you don't know. And of course, from a practitioner's perspective, I mean, that's crazy, crazy. I mean, why would you settle for the bad that you know when you can be sure, you can be certain that there's more, that there's another way? Because there's been hundreds, thousands of people who over the course, course of, of the history of humanity have described another way, which is the Dharma, also the teachings of the Buddha, the teachings of every enlightened being who's ever lived. And so when we vow the Dharmas are boundless, I vow to master them, we're vowing quite directly to master all of these teachings. And I don't mean that this is saying, well, you, mem- you memorize them, you gain control over them, so you don't have to worry about them anymore. You know, having mastered the Dharma, I'm, I'm home free. I won't have to make any more decisions. I won't make mistakes, which, of course, I don't think we sit there thinking that way. But it is what we expect. We think there's going to come a time when we will be done. We will graduate from Dharma school. We will have arrived. We will have achieved enlightenment. And we will not have to worry anymore. I read a, a, an article in the newspaper. You may have seen it. They were talking about how Obama spends the evenings, just uh, after supper, before he goes to bed. And, you know, he's, he's studying and working and watching sports and stuff. And, but they were saying that he, he and Rahm Emanuel, when he was still his chief of staff, had a fantasy that they would open a T-shirt shack in Hawaii and they would only sell white T-shirts, and they will only be medium. <laughs> so they would never have to make any decisions. And so <laughs> when they were in the Oval Office, and they, they had to make a very difficult decision, for which there was really no good alternative, uh, Emmanuel would, would turn to Obama, and he would say white. And Obama would turn to him, and he would say medium. <laughs> They also said that he was looking forward you know, to, to his time, you know, to being done, and, and so that he was going to sleep for four, and a five, four, four or five months. And I thought, oh, he sounds like a monastery resident. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, mastering the dharmas is not, is not mastery in the way that we think. Mastery is not mastery in the way that we think. It's not, it's not flawless. Actually, it is flawless, but it's like the faith mind says, it's without anxiety about non-perfection. It is flawless because it is complete. And Thich Nhat Hanh's version of this vow says, however immeasurable the dharmas are, I vow to explore them deeply. I vow to study them, realize them, and actualize them without forgetting that they are boundless and they are immeasurable, 
They cannot be mastered, and yet I am vowing to do it. Why? Because it's necessary. Because our lives depend on it, literally. Our lives literally depend on it. I mean, I don't have to tell you about the news that we've had in the last month or so. The lives of black men depend on it. The, blacks of, the, the lives of women everywhere depend on it. The lives of police, policemen depend on it. The French people and German innocent people depend on it. And children and you know, the animals that are becoming extinct and the um, plant species that we're decimating, they, they, they all depend on it. And not everybody will study the Dharma as the Dharma. Our lives still depend on it. The lives of the privileged depend on it too. The ones who seem to have all the power, who seem to have a good life. What good of a life is it when it requires cutting off parts of ourselves, which are also other lives? I mean, what makes a good life anyway, and what is its cost? The dharmas are boundless, and I vow to master them. Dariyoshi used to say, the limits of the knowable are unknowable. I vow to know them, is what we're saying. I vow to let myself be taught by all of these dharmas. Master Zhaozhou used to say, you know, even if there was a 10-year-old that had something to teach, I would learn from them. If there was a 100-year-old who wanted to learn, I would teach them. All of these people, all of these circumstances, constantly teaching us, but are we taking advantage of them? Are we open to them? You know, those stories of the, the uh, nameless old tea ladies on the side of the road, and the monks come up, and they have this encounter, and the monks usually would say, well, is there a good teacher around here? Just after they've had their head turned around by this nameless old woman, is there a good teacher around? And asking this, we miss the teacher right in front of our eyes. And of course, you know, the, a good teacher never stops learning, never stops wanting to be taught, never stops putting themselves in the path, in the midst of all these dharmas. Is not so certain. Doesn't think, yeah, I've seen it. I've seen them all. Like that, there's that, that story of the man, you know, the flood is coming. He hears about these floods, and he says, you know, God will save me. And um, his neighbors come around and say, you know, come with us. And then a, a canoe goes by, a motorboat goes by, a helicopter goes by. You know, they're coming to pick him up. And he always says, you know, God will save me. He'll take care of me. He drowns. He dies. He goes to heaven and says to God, you know, I put all of my faith in you. Why didn't you help me? And God says, you know, I sent the neighbors, I sent the canoe, I sent the motorboat, I sent the helicopter. What more were you looking for? Looking for a name, we miss the face, the true face, the original face. Looking for the Dharma to match our idea of the Dharma, we miss what it's teaching. Or we're caught off guard. We're caught off guard. We're caught off guard by, by unexpected 
kindness, by unexpected regard. I also told some of you that with this, this work that we were doing beyond fear, um, I, I was in a situation that was kind of, it was awkward. It was awkward and uncomfortable. Um, and I needed to speak to Shugen Sensei about it. And I really planned it. I really um, thought, you know, this is what he's, I thought he would disagree with me. And I thought, well, he, I'm going to say this. He's going to say this. I'm going to counter with this. And it's, you know, it's, I had it really kind of laid out. I had, an, I thought, an airtight argument. I had buttressed all my walls, and I filled in all the cracks. And I was just going to turn him around with my eloquence. And I get there, and I present the problem from my perspective. And he listened, and then he just looked at me, and he said, so what would help? And I'm like, uh, uh. <laughs> and part of me is actually thinking, well, can I still go through all the arguments? Because I, <laughs> I prepare them. <laughs> I had this ridiculous moment. I, I almost, almost went through them. And then I thought, okay, it's okay. <laughs> but he completely disarmed my defenses. You know? What? I mean, and it was, I mean, I remember how he even, he leaned forward in the chair. And he just looked at me and said, what would help? Oh, oh. It's so simple. Maybe for our culture, you know, maybe for, for our inclinations, a, a better, a better um, translation or a better version of this vow would be, the dharmas are boundless, I vow to be taught by them. And, and to, to let that learning not be abstract, to, to truly let it be embodied, have it be relevant, to have it be alive in your life. To, to not let these dharmas and our study of them, which, uh, you know, it can be, I find it quite interesting and fulfilling, the intellectual aspect of it, but to not let it stop there. To not let them stay distant or disconnected from our actual experience. And to, to be, be careful of the, the inclination to see what is here as different and separate, separate from what is out there, which especially now I think is so tempting because the world seems so mad um, right now to think, well, that's, that's not me. That's not my experience. To look closer and think, well, how, how am I part of this shared experience that we are all creating and what will I do about it? How long does a rhinoceros last after he's moved to compassion? Shugen Sensei would say that's the wrong question to ask. It's not a matter of lasting or not lasting. It's not a matter of before compassion and after compassion. I think it's really a matter of being willing to, to hold in mind the possibility that the more I truly do understand these dharmas, the more tools, the more ways I will have to regard you. Perish the thought to maybe even, maybe even love you and love myself. So the dharmas are boundless. I vow to be taught by them. I vow to be rent open, my heart laid bare, I vow to stand defenseless, yet awake and willing in the face of reality. 
I vow to truly not know that I may know more deeply. I vow to regard you, and when I can't, to regard you, and when I won't, to regard you, and to let you regard me, because I finally see that actually our lives do depend on it. For more talks, to get information about Zuise Sensei's upcoming teachings, or to join her email list, please visit vanessazuisegoddard.org.